Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Hey church, I hope that you are having a good Friday on this good Friday. Uh, Let's have some fun. We're going to start with a little game called Superhero Team Emblems. Okay, I'm going to show you guys an emblem of a logo of a superhero team, a team of heroes, a team of supernatural warriors. And you're going to have about three seconds to name the team that that represents, okay? And they're going to get progressively more difficult. And so we're going to find out how many nerds are watching online. So if you're watching this with somebody else, you will actually need to say your answer out loud or else it doesn't count, okay? You ready? Number one. Okay, this is the Fantastic Four. That was easy. Okay, if you missed that one, you know, I'll pray for you. All right, number two. Yeah, this is uh, The Incredibles. Okay, again, we're starting off easy. Let's get a little bit more difficult. What's this one? Used to watch this show on Saturday morning cartoons throughout the 90s. This is X-Men. Okay, Uh, and then here's another one. Okay, We'll, we'll accept... Transformers, but this is actually the Autobots logo, okay? Uh, And finally, the hardest one. Who does this represent? Thundercats, okay? Now, if you got all of them right, you are my people, okay? Uh, This is what emblems do. Emblems become synonymous with who they represent. There is an emblem that has become synonymous for Christians for 2,000 years. People over the centuries and on every continent have used this emblem, this symbol, of course, is the cross. We begin prayers with it, we wear it around our neck, we tattoo it on our skin, we put it in our ears. The cross is synonymous with Christians because the cross is synonymous with Jesus. This is a photo of Menelik II, He was emperor of Ethiopia, and he reigned for 20 years. He was a powerful ruler who transformed his country from a collection of semi-independent states into a united nation. And part of his efforts was to modernize his country. He ordered three electric chairs that were shipped from New York. But when they arrived, there was a problem. In Ethiopia at this time, there was no electricity. So he had this three electric chairs that he couldn't use. How would he solve this problem? Apparently, he had this stage built, and he had one of the electric chairs secured to it, and he used it as his throne. That's odd, isn't it? The symbol of the power of his kingdom was an instrument of death. When Jesus established his kingdom, he did the same thing. He deliberately used an instrument of death as the symbol of his kingdom and of his power. One of the most peculiar lessons Jesus ever taught his followers was to pick up their cross and follow him. To pick up our electric chairs, our lethal injections, our firing squads, and follow him. In Jesus' day, people didn't wear crosses for bracelets or necklaces or earrings. They didn't use them to decorate their homes, their churches, or their car bumpers. No, the cross was a tool of death, a torture device. Caesar Augustus bragged about capturing 20,000 runaway slaves. And those slaves who were not claimed, 
were then crucified. The movie Spartacus tells the true story of an army of rebellious slaves who revolted against Rome. 6,000 of them were crucified on the Apian Way, the major highway leading into Rome. Though crucifixion was a horrid way to die, for a Jew it represented an even worse kind of pain. The cross meant something even more deranged. To be crucified in the eyes of a Jew meant that you had been cursed by God. See, if you lived in the first century, the cross would be a symbol of shame and of terror for you, not of jewelry. Other world religions are known for their brightly painted images, gold-covered statues, but at the center of our faith rests an execution stake. The cross, simple, stark, and solitary. There is something to that old wooden cross. There's a hill of crosses, a pilgrimage site in Northern Lithuania. No one knows for certain how it began, but most believe it was meant as a symbol of hope. And the exact number of crosses is unknown, but estimates are around 100,000. When Lithu Lithuania was occupied by the Soviet Union, people traveled to the hill to leave their crosses. It became a symbol of peaceful resistance. The Soviets worked hard to remove the crosses and bulldozed the site at least three times. Each time the hill was restored and crosses were once again placed upon it. The cross was a symbol of resistance and the cross is still a symbol of resistance. It's still a symbol of hope in the midst of suffering. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote, it is good to learn early enough that suffering and God are not a contradiction, but rather a unity. For the idea that God himself is suffering is one that has always been one of the most convincing teachings of Christianity. I think God is nearer to suffering than to happiness. And to find God in this way gives peace and rest in a strong and courageous heart. So here on this Good Friday, let us read the origin story of this symbol of hope and resistance, this emblem of followers of Jesus. And this is after Jesus was put on trial for trumped up charges. Mark 15, we read, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Jesus, at the most poignant moment in Christian history, recognizes the significance of his imminent death with a cry of utter desolation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is abandoned, if only for a short time. And in this one act, the whole of humanity is offered a fresh start, a new relationship, a new kingdom inaugurated. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is often called the, the cry of dereliction or the cry of abandonment. And the phrase is a doozy for a lot of reasons, right? Jesus here seems to doubt God and claims that God himself has forsaken him. God has forsaken himself. If this is true, then Jesus wasn't perfect. If this is true, then Jesus had doubts. If this is true, then God abandoned Jesus. Do you see the ramifications of the prayer? And now there are lots of ways to explain this away, to explain the pain, to soften the blow. Oh, he's quoting Psalm 22. That's all he's doing. He's showing that he fulfilled a prophecy. And at first glance, this looks like it could be true. Psalm 22, uh, if you read through it, it, it vividly describes the process of crucifixion 2,000 years before crucifixion was even invented. Jesus himself uses the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is found in Psalm 22. And so for many followers of Jesus, this, this takes away the sting of Jesus saying the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting scripture, showing that he just predicted something. He's not truly feeling abandoned by God. He's showing us the deep truths of scripture. He's winking at the audience, knowing I got this. And for many, this line of interpretation is helpful and that's great and I affirm it. But what if there's something else going on here? What I've come to think about this agonizing prayer on the cross is very different. And what I'm proposing is opinion. I could be wrong. But there are a few reasons I think that there might be more going on here than just simply quoting Psalm 22, simply winking at the audience, letting them know I'm not really abandoned. I'm just fulfilling a prophecy See, what the perspective fails to take into account is that the cry recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark put this statement, this, 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 this announcement, you have forsaken me, in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Aramaic was the spoken tongue of Jesus. But whenever a Jewish person in the first century would quote scripture, you would quote it in the original Hebrew. You would not quote it in the native tongue, the Aramaic. In the Jewish faith, the Hebrew scriptures are read, memorized, and recalled in Hebrew, not in your native language. So while this cry might be inspired by the psalm, the words reflect a person's heartfelt cry of agony and loss rather than just reciting a verse. To read it otherwise would be to view it as part of some kind of cosmic theatrical show, a phrase that provides the whole crucifixion with a sense of despair and drama, all the while that wink to the audience knowing it's all gonna be okay. No, we must instead give this cry its full theological and existential weight. We must read it with all of its horror and its potency here, right here in the heart of Christianity, God despairs of God. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are and yet 
was without sin. So there is no sin in this prayer of dereliction on the cross. The only sin on the cross is the sin of all humanity, past, present, and future, that Jesus is bearing for us. It's not that Jesus sins by expressing agony in his aloneness, abandonment on the cross. No, he's bearing our sin. The atonement of Jesus was not a nice and neat heavenly transaction. It was a violent, messy act of God's great love for you and God's great love for me. It has always been, still is, and will forever be about God's love for creation. He is not distant, even in despair, even in the sense of abandonment by his father, he loves. It's never been about a theological equation or saying the right things. It's always about people, flesh and blood people. You, me, the neighbor across the street from you, uh, the, the DoorDash delivery guy, the telemarker that calls Every Wednesday at 6.45, why do they call at the same time and you hang up every time? It's always been about love, not in the abstract, but in the real. Real life people, people that you love, people that you love to be around, people that annoy you, people that you dislike. God died for all of us. A man who was conducting a survey knocked on a front door. A little boy opened the door, stared at him. The man asked the boy, how many people live in the house? And the boy replied, well, there's, there's Jimmy and there's Mary and there's Sophie and there's Bobby. And then the man impatiently interrupts the boy. He says, hey, hey, just give me the numbers. And the boy replied, there are no numbers in this house. They are all names to me. You are not a number. Watching this online from wherever you are watching it from, you are not a number. God had you at the forefront of, of his mind as he went to that old rugged cross. He had you in mind. He had your kid in mind. The person watching this on a cell phone, the couple watching this on a TV, Jesus was thinking of you on that cross. I love the story of a little boy named Tom. Tom uh, worked so hard to build a little toy boat. He spent months working on it, making sure it was exactly what he wanted, exactly what he envisioned. And the day finally came for him to test his boat, to test the sail. So Tom carried his new boat to the edge of a river and he placed it in there and he followed it along as it floated down the stream. How smoothly the boat sailed. Suddenly a strong current caught the boat. Tom tried to kind of pull it back to the shore, but it was too late. The little boat raced downstream, and he ran as fast as he could and as far as he could, but the boat slipped out of sight. All afternoon, he searched for the boat. Finally, it was too dark, and he could not search any longer, and he went home in tears, broken up about it. But a few days later, on his way home from school, he passed a pawn shop in the town, and he saw a little boat that looked like his in the window. And when he got closer, he could see, sure enough, it was his. It had his name written on the very bottom of it. So he went inside and he said to the man, sir, that's my boat, can I have it back? And he said, I'm, I'm sorry, somebody else brought that in. I paid good money for it, and so you could buy it. And he said, please, but it's mine. He says, I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. And so Tom went home and he looked and found as much coins. He broke his piggy bank. He looked in the couch. He found little coins in the couch. He pulled all of it together and finally scrounged up enough money between the car seats and his mother's car 
to buy it back. And he came to the store and gave him the money and he bought that boat and as it was placed in his hands, as he's walking out of the store, he looked at this boat and he said, now you are twice mine. First I created you, then I bought you. This is the story of God. First he created you, then on that old rugged cross, he bought you. God, I thank you that you endured the cross, the abandonment that you experienced, God, the moments that where we too feel alone, the moments we too feel abandoned by God, that you relate to that because you experienced that. And God, that you experienced it because you love us, that you didn't die on the cross because you were mad. You died on the cross because you were madly in love. Thank you for that reality. God, we need you. Let us be different because of you. We thank you for Good Friday and that we can call it good because of the result. Salvation for mankind. Thank you for the love that you displayed on that cross. May we display that love to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno for our Good Friday service. I want to invite you in two days to join us on Resurrection Sunday. We have two service times at the Bullard High School Theater, 9 and 11 a.m. with baptisms and a huge Easter egg hunt in between. And if you can't join us in person, we can't wait to see you online on Easter Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Grace and peace.